Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be looking back at this week's summit in Brussels and what it means for the state of Brexit. Plus, we'll be digging into the Cox report on bullying and sexual harassment in Parliament and whether Speaker John Burko needs to go. I'm delighted to be joined by our Brussels Bureau Chief Alex Barker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, Chief Political Correspondent Jim Pickard and Correspondent Laura Hughes. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. So, another summit and another disappointment for Theresa May. The Prime Minister went to Brussels hoping to unlock the stored negotiations between the UK and the EU, but she failed to make a breakthrough. Instead, she was told there would be no special summit in November until more progress is made. And just as before, it's the Irish backstop that remains the thorniest issue and the chief obstacle now to securing a withdrawal agreement. All the Prime Minister offered was the prospect of a longer transition period, which has managed to infuriate both Remainers and Leavers in the Conservative Party. Alex Barker, let's just begin by looking at the expectations and what went wrong, if you could say that, about this summit. It wasn't quite as disastrous as the Salzburg meeting last month where Theresa May came away humiliated, but she's left this time with no real progress and, as we are acutely aware, time is running out. Sure. I'm not sure the people organising this summit would have seen it as going wrong. I think one of the main objectives was to avoid what happened in Salzburg and to basically convey the message that the negotiations weren't going fast enough while making sure that it wasn't done in a way that jeopardised them restarting and potentially trying to overcome the big obstacles that are left. And so you saw this mix of tone from the leaders where on the one hand they would be saying, we can't call a November summit, we're thinking about no deal planning and so forth. And at the same time, offering enough encouragement to give a sense that this negotiation can still come to a conclusion in the coming weeks and months. At the same time, one thing you've got to remember, there were a lot of leaders in that room who were thinking, why are we here discussing this? Because not much has moved on really from their perspective since Salzburg. They didn't have something on the table to look at. Yes. Well, Theresa May was told you need to come and bring new, fresh proposals if you want to try and unlock these talks. But she doesn't really have anything new to offer except this idea of somehow extending the transition period from the 20 or so months into maybe almost three years. What's your thoughts on that? I'm afraid at this point, there's not much that's new in this Brexit negotiation. And they were asking her to come with fresh ideas. But what we're hearing at the moment in terms of both the transition extension, concepts about linking the backstop to a kind of UK customs union in a future agreement, these are all bits and pieces that the negotiators were playing around with last week. And they had 
basically brought together something that looked like a package and it wasn't quite politically sellable for Theresa May. And at the moment, we're seeing bits and pieces of that emerge, but not the whole outline. And we don't know what Theresa May was saying in the bilaterals with other leaders. There may have been some more detail offered there. But I think from the UK's perspective, they were pushing home this point about the backstop and how difficult anything that basically split the UK customs territory would be for her to sell in Westminster. So Robert Shrimsley, looking at Theresa May's position here, she went into the summit hoping for some progress or maybe not quite desperate for it yet and didn't get it. And again, this has raised the voices of people in the Conservative Party saying she's failing, she needs to be replaced and the strategy's not going anywhere. And you can see why they make that argument because as Alex said, nothing is changing at all. But at the same time, it's hard to see what can actually be done now to unlock this and get this deal over the line. Yeah, I mean... I- I don't think that by the time she went to the summit, she was expecting very much. I think that the die was cast at the weekend on this. I think there are a number of issues. One thing I think is one point is worth making, which is that actually there's a fundamental culture clash between the way the European Union does business and the way the British and Irish governments have previously done business over Northern Ireland, which is that actually you try to avoid forcing the issue. I covered the Good Friday Agreement as a reporter. And one of the key things about that was that any time you hit a real obstacle, you fudged the issue, you came up with other words, you tried to work your way around it. I remember Tony Blair going to Northern Ireland to try and sell the deal and coming up with three solemn vows that he put on a hoarding, you know, three solemn vows, considerably less than legally binding treaties. In Northern Ireland, progress has come and in Ireland, progress has come by fudging when you hit an obstacle and trying to work your way through it and buy yourself time. And so I think Theresa May is looking for ways to buy herself time. It's a classic British response. And the extra year gives you an extra year. Of course, actually, it's not evident from what we've seen so far that time is any friend to the prime minister in these issues. It took her two years to get an agreement within her own cabinet, and that fell apart within a weekend. So actually, to some extent, I think putting people's backs against the wall is possibly the only way that she has left, which is actually to delay until you reach a point where you can jam the whole deal through. And I think her own backbenchers understand what she's doing now, hence the rising volume of concern. I have to say, from what I've seen over recent months, I'm not overly impressed by rising volumes of concern from her own backbenchers. This has been going on for quite a long time. And in general, the more the noise, the less the action. So there's a lot of noise. Maybe it will have an impact unless we see something that really changes it like a real effort to force her out. I'm not convinced this noise amounts to much. I think that's very true about where the party is at the moment, that there's a lot of unhappiness. And obviously, Boris Johnson makes this point in his columns pretty much every week now that we need a new direction. But few it pains people, him to say so, though. I sure. know. And few people are actually saying we need to change the prime minister at this point. You have seen those voices beginning to increase. Nadine Dorries, who's a very Brexit-backing MP, she said that. And you, there's this talk going round of Theresa May being removed to be replaced by David Davis as the man who will come in deliberately Liver Brexit as it was originally envisaged and life will go on. There's obviously a few obstacles <laughs> uh, to that plan. Yeah, I think Nadine Doris has probably been fairly anti the Prime Minister for quite a long time. She was originally very supportive. No, I, I've lost track. I think that I remember seeing her in Boris's press conference on the morning that he decided not to run. I think in one sense they're right, which is that you're not going to get a change of strategy with the same Prime Minister. So if they really do want to change the strategy, they do have to get rid of her. The problem is implementation. They may well have the numbers to force a challenge to her, but under the Tory leadership election rules, 
It's a vote of confidence or no confidence. There's no other candidate in there until she loses that vote of no confidence. And the conventional wisdom is that she wouldn't lose that vote of no confidence. Therefore, the only way for that to happen is if the party sees that it can just impose a new leader without a contest. Hence the David Davis idea. He's 70 years old. He comes in, does the Brexit deal that he was manifestly unable to secure in his two years as Brexit secretary, and then steps aside for a younger, more promising candidate. Well, maybe... I don't believe that you can have a leadership contest in the Conservative Party now that is uncontested because somebody will contest it. And the moment it's contested, you're into three, three and a half months of contest. And that's pretty much all the time we have left to get anything done. So you still hit this fundamental point. It's very, very hard to remove her. And if you do, then what? Alex, let's go back to our favourite topic, which is the Irish backstop for a change. And where are we at on this at the moment? Because there was some report yesterday that Theresa May had told representatives from the Irish government that she acknowledged that there couldn't be a time limit on this. And we've heard some comments from people like Jeremy Hunt, the British Foreign Secretary, to say that, yes, there may not be a time limit, but there does need to be a mechanism that Britain can end it. Can you see any way through this? Actually, I mean, I think the time limit point the Irish would say she signed up to in December and then in a further letter to Donald Tusk in March. You've got to remember where different parts of this deal sit. The backstop is a self-contained thing in the withdrawal agreement, and it's Northern Ireland specific. And what the British negotiators are trying to do is replace that or avoid it with an arrangement that would be UK-wide on customs. And part of that sits in the treaty, the withdrawal agreement, but most of it is in a declaration on future relations. Because the EU side, not just for legal reasons, but for political reasons, think you can't negotiate a full customs union with all the level playing field provisions, all the kind of state aid issues, the things that make it work as a treaty, a lasting treaty. You can't do that in three weeks, they say, for the whole UK. Theresa May is basically caught because if she tries to get the full customs union into the treaty, so it's workable and the Northern Ireland specific parts kind of uh, are replaced, it means on the right of the party, it looks like Britain's going to be trapped in a customs union for a very long time if you want to keep the union together. And this is the dilemma facing the Prime Minister, Robert, that the DUP who support her government, she may not need them to get a Brexit deal through, but it's going to be very tricky if they do walk away. They're not particularly going to accept any of this. Their language has been toughening over the past week towards any kind of proposal, as has the right of the Conservative Party towards this idea we would be in a customs union and never leave. So... Even if she does manage to get some agreement and, as Alex says, get some kind of legally binding sense that in a future relationship there would be a UK-wide customs union as the backstop, how does she begin to make that fly at Westminster? Well, I think the key issue is the DUP. I think if the Democratic Unionist, these are very hardline Ulster Unionists, can be persuaded that what she has negotiated is acceptable, then I think she can just jam it through. But my, my hunch is if the DUP are brought on side, that reduces the number of potential conservative rebels. She pushes something approaching a customs union policy through Parliament as part of the deal and Parliament will sign up to it. That would be my best guess. If she cannot square the DUP, then I think it's extremely difficult and I'm not sure that I see how she can get the numbers for a deal. Obviously, I don't want to predict anything at this stage. It would be foolish. It's a very big (laughs) mugs game. But if you have a look, if she does go towards this direction of having a customs union at least for a good period, that would bring more votes from the Labour Party, one would think. 
You see, I see what you did there, Seb. You said you didn't want to predict anything, and then you asked me to predict something. I, I think it's it's exactly right, though, that if the DUP is squared off, then the number of potential Tory rebels will fall. And the other point, which we haven't mentioned yet, is it reduces the Scottish issue, because one of the things that I think Theresa May wouldn't have expected over the last week were the interventions of Ruth Davidson, the leader of the Tories in Scotland, and David Mundell, the Scotland secretary, saying we can't accept the kind of backstop that's being talked about for Northern Ireland because it will place intolerable pressures on us in Scotland and pressures on the union there. So I think the unionist issue in general is one that Theresa May has to come up with a solution for. If she can come up with that solution, I think her problems, while still substantial, and it would be a fool to predict that she is going to get this through, I think her problems have eased. Well, to continue with this line of predictions, Alex, what is going... He's still doing it, Alex. He wants you to predict now. What's going to, what's going to happen next in the coming weeks following this summit? Oof. I'm not going to go down that road. What I'm going to say instead is the biggest problem facing these negotiators in political terms is the fact that whatever way you look at the backstop issue, whatever the UK decides to do in the future, be it a customs union, an FTA, be it Norway plus, I mean, if we said the full single market and customs union, the EU would still require a Northern Ireland specific backstop in that withdrawal treaty that has provisions maybe not explicit, maybe disguised in all sorts of clever ways, but that would basically split the UK's customs territory. And I don't know whether that is ever acceptable to the DUP, whatever other arrangements are kind of packaged around it. And the thinking now is, is there any way to change course on that? But I think a lot of big gambles have been made at different points in this negotiation, and we're seeing it all crystallise now around that. I think one other point to mention is, if you think, as many observers of the Westminster scene do, that Theresa May will be challenged after 29th of March, after Brexit is completed, then you have to factor into the equation of the backstop that somebody else is going to be Prime Minister and that the British policy may have changed. So there is, however maddening it is to the British government, there is a real logic in making sure that you pin Britain down by treaty if you can, because, you know, in five months' time, you could suddenly find yourself negotiating with with a Prime Minister who's from the very hard Brexit wing of the Conservative Party. And when you look at the politics of the Conservative Party, one assumes it's going to go in a more Brexit direction in terms of who's going to replace. I don't think anyone sees, you know, Dominic Grieve becoming Prime Minister, it's much more likely to be a Dominic Raab or Boris Johnson who would want to go in the Canada direction, which from the EU's point, Alex, means there absolutely does need to be a backstop there. Absolutely. I mean, the the idea of it being all weather is that it survives the kind of ebb and flow of British politics over the next few years. And it's going to be a really difficult negotiation on the future. And we tend to look at this backstop in kind of in a direct way. What will this do to Northern Ireland and so forth? If you look at it as a negotiator after Brexit, Northern Ireland is leverage for one or the other side. If there isn't a backstop provision, the UK at different parts of a future trade negotiation would be able to say, oh, well, you know, this isn't quite good enough. We'd have problems in Northern Ireland. Can we do better on this or better on that? 
And it would always be an issue for the EU because of Ireland's sensitivity on it. Once you have a backstop provision in a withdrawal treaty, it kind of neutralizes that as leverage for the UK. And in fact, for the EU, whenever you're getting to a stage where the free trade agreement is close to being agreed, the EU says, oh, well, sorry, this isn't good enough. We'd have to use the backstop and it would give pause to the UK. So it's really vital in so many ways to this negotiation and to shaping the future UK-EU relationship. It's amazing to me, actually, that at the beginning of this process, we didn't realise how it would come down to this, but it has. I think the other point I'd make is a Conservative Party point, which is when they do have a leadership election, assuming we are where we think we're going to be, the contest will be entirely about Brexit. It will be entirely about what each candidate's strategy is toward Brexit, which is a disastrous place for the Conservative Party to actually be. They want to be in a place where actually we've done Brexit and now we're going to elect a leader to take us into the new challenges of our country and have someone who can create an attractive alternative to Jeremy Corbyn. Instead of which, I think it's almost a given that if the contest comes next year, it will be determined entirely upon who is the most faithful on Brexit. And finally, question for you both. Where do you feel we are on the prospect of a no-deal exit? Because, of course, the longer these talks go on without any sign of breakthrough or sign any softening of the politics, it does continually raise the question, is Britain going to stumble out the block next March without a formal agreement? Robert, what are your thoughts? I think on balance that I don't think the prospect of a no-deal Brexit has gone up for one reason, which is that the other issue that has gained momentum over the last four or five months is the question of a second referendum. And I think the alternative to no deal, once a deal is off the table, is a second referendum. And I think Parliament will force one if there is not a deal that they can vote for. And I think in the circumstances of a second referendum, I think Brussels probably would have an incentive to stop the clock. And Alex? I think the risk of a no deal has gone up partly just as a function of time passing. We're reaching the point where the threat of a no deal has moved from a kind of negotiating point to something that is in practical terms, something these governments are going to have to work towards, trigger plans, start spending money, and thinking through what a no-deal scenario would actually be from week to week. And that changes people's outlook on it, their calculations about it, what the costs would be become more real, and in a way what can be averted in terms of contingency measures is also clearer. And in a way, politicians might get to a point of thinking, well, maybe this is the best we could do. This week, a very critical report was released into bullying and sexual harassment in the House of Commons. A former High Court judge said there was a culture of deference, subservience, acquiescence and silence towards complaints made at the heart of Britain's political life. Too often, these things are brushed under the carpet and a wholesale cultural change was needed starting at the top. For many MPs and beyond, this means Speaker John Burko, who appears pretty unwilling to step aside. Laura Hughes, let's begin with this report. This all began with accusations that I think really started with the Me Too movement when it arrived in Westminster and questions about the behaviour of MPs, even ministers. And then it went on with the treatment towards the clerks. These are the apolitical staff that run the House of Commons. Tell us about the report and its conclusions. Well, I think it confirmed for a lot of us what we already knew was happening in Parliament and that there is a culture of covering up accusations of bullying and harassment. That was the most striking thing, I think, from the report. We knew it was already going on, but now we've had confirmation that people have actively sought to cover these things up and sweep them under the carpet. 
it all came as a result of accusations of bullying against John Burko, the Speaker in the House of Commons. That's what prompted Andrea Leadsom, the leader of the House, to invite Dame Laura Cox to come and do this independent inquiry because one of the main issues that we keep seeing is that any sort of investigation to any kind of allegation is not independent. So when these accusations came up against John Burko, the Standards Committee, which is made up of MPs, voted three to two to not let the Standards Commissioner, Catherine Stone, investigate allegations into John Burko. And this report has confirmed what a lot of us knew. The question now is, what does it actually mean and what's going to change? The really interesting part of her report is she didn't look into specific allegations and the validity of those allegations. But what she did say is that she can't envisage the seismic shift in culture without senior management changing at the top of the House of Commons. And making those comments, she is talking about John Burko. That's the really interesting, crucial part. That is an actual recommendation she is she has made. We'll come on to Mr Burko's role on this in a moment. But for those listeners not aware... Parliament is such a strange place in how it's operated because people see it as one entity where it really isn't because you have the common staff who employ clerks and the aid political officials, but then you have all your MPs and peers who directly employ people. So in a way, it's lots of small businesses. There's no coherent structures for HR. They've started to introduce a complaints hotline and ways of reporting this, but your only real avenue of recourse is through the party whips. And too often, I think one thing I took away from the report is the party are obviously invested in sometimes brushing these things aside. And one of the things that there are MPs who are very well known, I'm sure we know who these MPs are, who have these allegations made about them. So it's not just a couple of bad eggs and it's the culture of everybody knows about this, but nobody is willing to do anything about it. Yeah, you know, even when there was a debate on the report, I overheard a woman's voice, I assume it was an MP, saying, we all know who they are. So for years, everybody in that house knows who the bad eggs are and nothing has happened. And we had all the stories and really, I still don't think anyone's been punished. No one's lost their seat. They may have been suspended temporarily, but no one's actually lost the privilege of sitting in Parliament. And now this report and no action really coming off the back of it will once again just reinforce this idea that no change is coming. It's not within the interest of anyone to change it. There was a moment in PMQs where a Labour MP actually stood up and said that she had a constituent who had been harassed at work and the process had been awful. What advice did the Prime Minister have to give her to encourage her to come back to work, given that her employer was this house? That's pretty extraordinary. The report is what we knew, but again, I mean, the main point from it is nothing has changed since it came out. And so much of this, Jim Picard, is a cultural thing. You've worked in the House of Commons Press Gallery for many years and Parliament is not like other workplaces because it mixes the professional and the socialising together. There are, I think, 13 bars or drinking establishments within the House of Commons. So the clear boundaries you might have in other workplaces are not necessarily so obvious. And this is what MPs have said about policing this and trying to change the culture here. That it goes to the very heart of what makes Parliament... well some might say unique and quite special compared to other workplaces and other legislatives around the world. Yeah, I think the drinking culture could be exaggerated in terms of if you changed. Go, if you go back 20 or 30 years, people were drinking at lunchtime. You had the late night sittings that don't really happen anymore. And therefore you had all these MPs hanging around drinking in between votes until very late at night. Now, it has become more 
kind of family friendly for the MPs, I suppose. I'm not excusing anything at all. I think I think the, the issue is patronage. As Laura was pointing to earlier, and as you were saying, because loads of the people working in Parliament are working for MPs on a sort of self-employed basis, that element of patronage whereby you want to become a politician in 10 years time or 15 years time and you see being the dog's body for an MP is the way forward. That means that people in the past have been willing to put up with some quite unpleasant behaviour, inappropriate behaviour, bullying, because the prize on the horizon is one that they thought maybe it's worth it. In the way that junior reporters throughout the decades have endured bullying because they don't intend to remain training reporters forever they want to progress but there's something about the fact that they're self-employed businesses these MPs that means that the HR processes are not in place and that's something that really needs to change they have I think MPs have a sense that they can get away with whatever the hell they want because they have because of the way that parliament is set up they're closed private offices you know these aren't open spaces it's very easy to imagine how you could get trapped in a corner how you can shout at a member of your staff without anyone ever really overhearing so there's an issue of witnesses and the whole place gives I think MPs a sense of entitlement it's an extraordinary building to work in and they have this sense of grandeur and are looked at as gods by many of the staff that work in parliament. Let's talk about the issue of Speaker Burko Jim so John Burko has quite a few enemies amongst MPs mostly on the conservative side who see him as this former very right winger who's progressively gone leftwards I think it's fair to say and they really want to oust him so for example James Doddridge a conservative Brexit MP someone who's campaigned for many years, those usual folks jumped on this report to say this is an example of why Speaker Burko needs to go now. But as Laura said earlier on, that looks like it's not necessarily going to happen. So talk us through what's happened with his position, whether you think there's any chance of him actually getting pushed out. So all politicians have been on some kind of journey. Quite often it's from left to right. And Burko has travelled on the opposite direction. He started out as a young conservative, as a very right-wing young individual, I mean, almost notoriously so. And yet somehow along the way, he's drifted into a much more kind of lefty type position. His wife, Sally Burkow, is very much of the left. And he, he he's often very interested in LGBT issues, equality issues. But his critics sort of suspect that sometimes he's using this as a kind of PR for himself and it's a sort of disguise, whereas actually there's some quite unpleasant behaviour emanating from him in terms of how he deals with his immediate colleagues and employees. There was a sort of moment earlier in the week where it looked like his position was not very tenable. And then Laura has more clarity over this than me because she wrote it. It it looks like he's managed to hold off for another year or so. And what's fascinating is it's Labour MPs who came to his aid. And we had that extraordinary debate earlier in the week where lots of female Labour MPs from the party that's meant to be the party of workers' rights and the party of equality propping him up in his position. And it seems to be all about they think he's more useful to them over Brexit. So this was articulated by Margaret Beckett, the former Foreign Secretary and long-standing Labour MP lawyer, when she stood up and said, basically, to summarise, bullying is very bad and should be dealt with, but Brexit is really important and we need John Burko to stay there. And the reason for this is MPs are very nervous about having a meaningful vote. And they were spooked particularly this week by papers coming from the government saying they're going to try and avoid making that as meaningful as possible. They see John Burko as their guy to make sure they will get that meaningful vote and have their say. So in that case, they're willing to overlook these accusations. And we should also just note that John Burko rejects all these accusations against him. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to 
swear on your podcast, but it's a load of rubbish to suggest that there isn't another speaker that could step in for John Burko and ensure that Parliament had a vote and had a say on issues like Brexit. It's thoroughly disingenuous to suggest that. And I think it actually summarises the whole issue in Parliament and in politics. And if you're a young victim of assault, there is this idea that if you're part of the project be that the Labour Party, the big project is getting into government. You do not do anything that goes against and hurts the project. So if you really want to make an accusation publicly against MP, you really need to think about it because this could stop us getting into government and you're you're hurting the family and you're, you're harming the project. And politics comes first. It's not about the victims. And it's the hypocrisy of this, the Labour Party, and they are not prepared to stick up for their own workers' rights or treat their own workers in Parliament with respect I think it's staggering to have used that excuse it it makes no sense to me I thought the best comment on that was Dan Hodges the columnist who said that if Britain was able to change Prime Minister in the middle of World War II then surely we can have a a different Speaker of the House of Commons just because Brexit is very complicated and Margaret Beckett comments she said abuse is terrible it shouldn't happen it should be stopped this behaviour should change anyway whether the Speaker goes or not but you also had Emily Thornberry the current Shadow Foreign Secretary saying this is absolutely not the time to be changing speaker and then others such as Angela Regal former front bencher saying if we change the speaker now that way lies utter chaos and Seb alluded to it earlier this is it appears to be all about this debate shaping up when Theresa May comes back from Brussels before Christmas sometime with her deal we're going to have this meaningful vote and this is going to sound a little bit techie for those who aren't deep in the weeds of Westminster but it's all down to whether they have a yes no vote on this deal, followed by a load of amendments, by which time the amendments are coming too late and are kind of meaningless, or whether you can somehow force the amendments first ahead of the yes-no vote, which is what would normally happen. And this letter from Dominic Rabb to the Procedure Committee made clear that he wants the yes-no vote to come first, and he's basically saying anything else could undermine you know, the will of the people and all the rest of it, and the British public wants a clear decision, and business wants a clear decision and all the rest of it, so they're trying their hardest to prevent this, and unsurprisingly the really hardcore pro-EU MPs especially on the opposition benches are very unhappy. And finally, Laura, just to add to the slight bizarreness of this hotel, Speaker Burke said he's going to go anyway, so when he ran for the Speakership following the MPs' expense scandal, his whole pitch was to clear the board, restore the authority and reputation of the Commons and in many respects he has done that Parliament is much more the centre of politics than it was if you consider during the financial crash Gordon Brown only made two statements to the House of Commons now every major statement pretty much comes in in the House of Commons but he said he would be there for nine years that was last summer that's now passed and he's made it known to his friends that he is going to step down next summer now obviously it slipped once it could slip again but there does seem to be a pretty firm case he should go before then but Labour MPs aren't willing to do anything about it as Jim was just saying because of Brexit it looks like he's really going to be safe and I think although Speaker Burko has done many good things for restoring Parliament you're not going to get that cultural change until you have new management staff at the top. Yeah, and until you have political leaders willing to say that, because both Jeremy Corbyn's spokesman and Theresa May said it's a matter for the House. But I'm sorry, John Burke has serious power. 
there is a reason why MPs don't necessarily want to challenge him. He is the one that chooses when they get to speak in the, in the Commons chamber and many are afraid to go against him. He's not going to move. He said he's going to move next year, but that is not an admission of doing anything wrong. That is or him. responsibility. No, and that's him setting out his own timetable. No one appears to be willing to challenge it. It sends another message to people working in Parliament that your experiences aren't more important than the big political projects of various parties and of government. And if you were going to create the position of speaker again, you would never give one man or woman so much power. This is what happens when you give MPs this much power. And this is what happens when you give MPs the opportunity to mark their own homework and to decide whether or not their colleagues should be investigated or not. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to Alex, Robert, Jim and Laura for joining us. We'll be back next week for another instalment. And in the meantime, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and would like to see some more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which is ever you can find at ft.com forward slash offer 50. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Harry Robertson. Until next time, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.